Back to Van Dusen, but no sense of Hoffman lurking. Salt Lake sending it deep. Hoffman, are you kidding me? My goodness, Johnny Hoffman, have yourself a night. Welcome back. It's Swing Pass. We've got 10 weeks of regular season action in the rearview mirror. A much firmer playoff picture ahead of us. Two regular season divisional champs already and a smorgasbord of contenders still in their divisional races. I am Adam Ruffner. That is Daniel Cohen. This is Swing Pass. We're going to get right into the Week 10 results, starting with the big Friday night battle in the East Division between the undefeated New York Empire and the D.C. Breeze. The league's premier rivalry matchup came away once again with an Empire victory. They're 24th in a row dating back to last season, 28 in a row at home dating back to the 2018 season. The Empire are simply without peers at this moment, no matter how hard DC fights, no matter how many fourth quarters that they seem to make these games competitive, they just cannot get over the hump that is the Empire and particularly that New York defense that was 7 of 10 on break opportunities on Friday night, once again, fueling the victory. Elsewhere, Salt Lake had their SoCal road trip, and they cleaned up nicely, finishing 2-0 on the weekend, getting to 10 wins in the regular season for the second straight season, and clinching the West Division regular season title. They will face off against New York in Week 12 in an absolutely tantalizing matchup of the league's two best teams in 2023 could not have set up that game any better that is just under two weeks away between the two divisional champions already anointed in the playoff race elsewhere pittsburgh getting an all-important win to stay in their central division playoff race improving to four and four with a 25 to 15 win over detroit last friday night Elsewhere, Colorado goes to their Pacific Northwest road trip, getting back-to-back wins in Portland on Friday night and then Seattle on Saturday. The Summit defense has really tuned up in their last three games. They had 23, or excuse me, 32 blocks and 19 breaks in the two games against the Cascades and the Nitro. Again, this Summit team struggled with takeaways just a few short weeks ago. That is not the case anymore. They were without... The 2022 Defensive Player of the Year in Cody Spicer did not matter. The Summit defense showed up. They get to 8-3 and three now in the season. They clinched their second straight playoff appearance. The 2022 expansion team living up to all the hype in their second season. Colorado really heading into the postseason now with a huge momentum and head of steam. Uh, Boston on Saturday getting a huge win in Toronto, 24-21, to behind a very impressive defensive performance from the glory once again. They were 8 of 11 on break opportunities, all important in moving ahead in that East Division playoff race, trying to stay in the hunt for the third seed alongside the Philadelphia Phoenix, who are now riding a five-game winning streak after starting 0-4. That's right. They are now 5-4 following their 18-10 win yesterday in Montreal over the 0-10 Royale. Royale continuing to dwell deeper and deeper into the East Division standings. They still continue to struggle at an, to score at an all-time rate. 
waiting for the Royale to turn things around elsewhere. Indianapolis getting a very convincing 23-17 win at home over Madison. Their second win in as many weeks against the Radicals have just fully flipped that rivalry on its head. Indy now sweeps the season series against the Radicals for the first time in their franchise's history, dating all the way back to 2013 between these two historic AUDL squads. So hats off to the Alley Cats on that very impressive win and inching Oh, so much closer to clinching their playoff spot. They now sit in 7-2, all alone in first place in the Central Division. Minnesota still sits at 6-2, but because of their idleness in Week 10, they move a half game behind the Alley Cats. Austin taking care of business 25-16 against Dallas. They move to 7-3, inching just ahead of the 6-3 Carolina Flyers in the South Division standings. That division is going to come down to the final two weekends when we get back-to-back weekends of Atlanta versus Carolina. That will determine who gets what kind of seating in the South. So again, week 10, not a whole bunch of particularly interesting individual game results outside of maybe the Salt Lake, LA, and DC, New York games we'll be sure to talk about. But man, oh man, did it really set the table for what's to come in these next few weeks in the AUDL. We just get more and more hype every week for that New York Salt Lake game that's upcoming. And I, I could not be more excited about it. Another New York DC game, which by the way, I feel like every each of the last three games, I feel like New York gets like a two to three goal lead for most of the first half. And then DC makes it a game in the third quarter. And then New York just closes things out in the fourth quarter or overtime if it takes that. I just like New York and Salt Lake, part of their similarities this year is just their ability to consistently close out these games and we saw from salt lake too in that la game like la was kind of bringing it close in the third quarter closing that gap and their d-line was like looking really efficient on every single break opportunity they had but then salt lake just it's like their offense dials it up their defense dials it up in the fourth quarter and i it's getting me more excited for that salt lake new york game specifically i just kind of want to like skip to the fourth quarter and see how these teams can jockey back and forth, presuming that it will be a close game. I'm hopeful. I'm not skipping anything in that game. I think that that's going to be a four-quarter <laughs> war between these two teams. Just, I it mean, should again, the, the cream of the crop this year, I feel like on both sides of the disc have been the Empire and the Shred, and they showed that once again in Week 10. I mean, you talk about New York, it feels like you say it's sort of been the same script the past three to four matchups between these two teams where – New York gets the edge. They have this kind of momentum. It feels like they might widen it as they do against almost any other competitor on their schedule. And yet DC does what they do better than any other opponent against the Empire, and that is battle back. That is not just hemorrhage away the game in the third quarter. It is to make something interesting heading into the fourth as they did. Once again, it's tied. They even had a lead there late in the third in that surge that they get when they... They sort of get like a couple breaks, a handful of really consistent drives, and all of a sudden they're just back into it. But to your point, once again, it just ends in a resounding New York fourth quarter closeout with Ryan Osgar leading the way, finishing with eight assists, four goals, 28 of 30 from the field, throwing almost 500 Dude, total so, yards. Just, so good. And and it's it's that thing of it now feels like it doesn't matter which individual star it is stepping up in these matchups against the DC Breeze. It was Jeff Babbitt back in week three alongside Ryan Osgar. 
last mm-hmm. year in the playoffs, it was Jack Williams and Ben Yacht really carrying that team over the edge. You go back into the midseason battles that they had last year. It was, again, Osgar, Yacht, Williams. Like, it just it feels like no matter which game and which kind of groups of stars on this Empire roster, they simply find the formula to push past DC. And on the opposite side, for as valiant as these DC efforts are, it still feels like a bit of a mystery as to what exactly their plan is going to be heading into these final quarter closeouts. And I definitely think that the DC's absences impacted this mightily. You know, you talk about AJ Merriman yeah. and I think Jock Nissen in particular. Nissen on offense and Merriman on defense, their presences were very much missed. It felt like it disallowed Rowan from a little bit of more lineup mobility or adaptability and them finding matchups where he could really exploit. He was a great in Friday night. He looked excellent leading that offense. He started the game off with a huge huck to Kevin Neely. He had a, or Kevin Healy. He had a few other just big throws in the game. And I thought his presence was really needed in leading them throughout the, the comeback in the third quarter and kind of tightening up in the second half. But This is all to say that it was once again sort of kind of lost in the wash as to who it felt like would step up for DC in that in that final quarter. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that they they don't have these presences or that these players aren't performing well, you know, to a certain standard. It's just that it's not at the level of what New York is executing at right now. And it's just it's it's become visible. Right. Like you just see New York just being almost cliche in the way that they get these fourth quarter breaks and the way that these dross blocks kind of come out of nowhere. And yet at the same time are so consistent that you just learn to expect, Hey, we just sent a 70% pass into the middle of the field in the fourth quarter. Dross are sharking out there. Like that is a turnover. And it just, that happened again in this game. It, It feels like it happens about once a game in the DC matchups. There's just, there's some point in which the execution lapses and New York take it, takes advantage of it. I'm getting rambly now, but it just it's because I, I want to give as much credit as possible to the Breeze because you really see how they come at this New York team and it being better than basically every ever every other New York adversary. And yet yeah. it's still so shy now. Like New York has won now nine of the last ten matchups going back multiple seasons against DC. We call this the strongest rivalry, and I still absolutely believe that that. Yeah. But the results are starting to become a little disparate in the Empire's favor. No doubt. Yeah. It has become very, very one-sided. And it is, it's interesting because given how close these games always are and given that we've had multiple overtime and double overtime games, you know, you, you kind of think DC is due for a win against New York. And so, like, it's it's not at all to count them yeah, out. I, of- I think I literally... Sorry, I just think I literally said that ahead of the week three matchup. I was like, DC's at home. They've got all these new options and things. Like, I just feel that like was my solution. Like, like, just some weird mysticism or something. Right. Like, <laughs> what else is it? Like, what are the actual, like, I guess my question, what are the actual adjustments DC can do that they haven't already tried? Like, they try the box N one for Osgar. That worked in the playoffs last year. Didn't work in the two <laughs> matchups. That man went the Oscar matchup. In. All right, let's talk. Let's talk quickly about the Oscar matchup <laughs> this past weekend because it was Jasper, Tom, it was Cranston, it was that that classic one-two punch that they like to throw on him. I think Oscar was just owning the Jasper Tom matchup, like in the deep space, kind of in in the intermediate space. Like Tom is is quick, 
but I think Osgar just has like a he's just like so decisive with his cuts and he he can make quick movements off of his fellow cutters where he's just like gonna get open whether that's downfield or in the middle space Cranston I think what what he's like kind of become known for is a really big mark and that was part of what limited Osgar as a thrower in the East mm-hmm. Division Championship last year the problem is Osgar is just so much quicker than him so if Osgar gets open like from the front of the stack and has like five yards of separation on an in cut Cranston kind of has to do that like rounded mark and if he can't set the mark in the first like two stall counts Osgar is just looking to to throw it deep that's what happened on that like John Randolph kind of like fade uh flick throw Osgar yeah, had yeah. where Randolph was like cutting to the near side and then like bounced a bag it was like Cranston never quite got close enough to take that threat away and Osgar just creates separation so quickly that he has and he's just so decisive as a thrower like the 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 painter or like the artistry analogy we use for him is just so apt every single time you watch him play I, like I don't know there's there's probably no one more decisive and better with like touch throws and just like instinctual uh you know particularly throws to the end zone, I would say it's Osgar and Jordan Kerr. Like those two guys. I was going <laughs> to say after Kerr's weekend, I think we deserve a little yeah. bit of recognition. But there is, but there's like something so, so aesthetic about watching those guys play and just like mm-hmm. getting open at will and then, st- then throwing within like the first two stall counts and it just being like the perfect dime out to space. Yeah. And using the full width too. I think, one of the first yeah. kind of pioneers in terms of throwing access width-wise in this league was Bobby Lay, actually. Those huge arcing OI forehands. And I feel yeah. like ever since he kind of really showed the dangerousness of that and with those cannon teams back in 2016 and 2017, there's been mm-hmm. a lot more throwers who kind of use those open-up throws. And I feel like Kerr and Osgar in particular are so good at that. You just so often see them on like a rail on one sideline and they'll just open up the whole field to some back corner shot. They're just so good at kind of opening up all of it. And yet at the same time, because of that, when they collapse into their tight space throws, when they just have those like little knifing, incisive, almost like scalpel throws, they're the best player too, because I think they get the defense to react a little bit more to their true throwing power. And it allows a few more lanes to open up in the interstitial spaces. And they're just so good there too. I mean, Osgar was doing it against DC on Friday. Jordan Kerr was doing it on Friday and Saturday against LA and SoCal. The other thing that I really like about both of them in terms of like finishing as throwers, they're great at getting those warning track kind of receptions on the goal line Mm -hmm. as a receiver and not just taking the dump, but doing like a continuation throw to the future to a streaking receiver. Kerr is so good at those. Kerr loves those. That is such a difficult throw to make to anticipate how to soften it for your receiver but not so much that the trailing defender can come up like there's so there's just so many similarities the more you think about that like both incredible in the red zone too like probably the two best red zone weapons in the entire league like osgar osgar's got these like new jump cuts he's working in probably because of jack williams but like just very effortless cuts to either the break side or the open side and then he had this one one, I think it was one of his first assists was just like like a quick kind of half pivot uh, backhand break to Solomon Ruschmeyer Bailey. 
it's just like throws that that like hit their guys perfectly in stride but are so difficult to get off like at that point of release and i i'm just blown away by these guys throwing talent it's so fun to watch if you haven't watched either of these guys yet you got to be tuning in the rest of the season especially when they meet in two weeks he showed it he showed it last year but have you seen kerr's new wrinkle as far as that goes in the red zone where he'll he'll set up cutting to the right he'll get the disc and then he'll pivot over the top so he gets to his lefty flick even quicker yeah. and then he just deposits that on like a break cut to the backside he had a yep. couple of them and you know it's going to be caught san diego it's too. it's legitimately one of the most unfair moves i think right now in the audl because he sets it up so simple it's it's a it's usually a cut to the fourth side and then he can just because he's six four just step over you to get to the break side and he does it all yeah. Within one motion, it's catch, pivot, and release. By the time the still, defense doesn't even get a mark, has the inside backhand too. So like right, you yeah, can't overcommit yeah. one way. <laughs> if you overcommit right. for the flick, that's his other favorite throw. Like there's there's nothing you can do with those guys. Like I don't know. I really don't know how DC did successfully contain Ryan Osgar in the East Division Championship game. Like I know I know we talk about how it, it worked out with Jasper Tom and David Granson, but. We just saw the same approach by DC, and Osgar just shredded them all game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's another impressive win for New York. Maybe now we should shift a little bit to Salt Lake's weekend, starting with Friday night. They get that impressive 28-18 to 18 win over LA. It looked like the shred were going to run away in the middle part of this game, but the Aviators uh-huh. did a great job of staying and battling with the shred. They made it a close game all the way down to the wire. Lucas Ambrose, once again, the league's leader in block, gets three on that night, just has one of the most fun matchups all season with Jordan Kerr. It was just back and forth the entire game. LA has juice. Like, that is the thing I will give LA. They... They have a lot to work on. Their defense, particularly in the second half, I think left some things to be desired. It felt like some of those closing drives for the shred were just a little too easy in terms of just possession and punching in. But mm-hmm. man, when they when this LA team kind of starts riding the lightning, like they get a little bit of that momentum, you could see it against Salt Lake. They have the talent. They have leaders in Pavel Giannis and Sean McDougal, and they just have a sense of themselves where they can really push good teams in a way that, LA hasn't done since like 2018. Like they just have, I think, an authority to their game that we were excited to possibly see with these big time additions that the Aviators got during the offseason. But to see it really yeah. come to fruition, even in a close loss, I think is a great indication for LA as they kind of lock in for their playoff battle, trying to get that third seed out in the West. Yeah, when they've got those two late meetings with Oakland, I think what we saw from them against Salt Lake was, to me, like like you said, like juice is a great word for them, where I think we, you know, we've been seeing them beat up on kind of the bottom teams in the West Division. Right. So it was it was good to see, like, they have this clear fight in them and, like, the ability to go on big runs, where I think Oakland is such, like, a high-energy team. You need that to compete for that third seed in the West. So I'm I'm very excited for those two meetings. I think those are also the last two weeks of the season. Like those and Carolina Atlanta are are both the final two weeks of the regular season. That's fun. Mm -hmm. We just had like Atlanta Carolina circled on the calendar win the season. And now all of a sudden aviators Oakland becomes this very, very spicy West division slate. 
the final two regular season weekends. No, it's it's great, and I feel like it's an actual reversal of the past few seasons where the final couple weekends haven't held a whole bunch of yeah. drama or mystery around them. We've kind of had right. seeds locked up relatively early, and so this year that's just not going to be the case. I just wanted to talk a little bit about Salt Lake. We can extend it into their victory against San Diego on Saturday night. It was 10-goal difference at the final buzzer, but the Growlers were close for three quarters. They were within yeah. two at the buzzer, the end of the third. They made a game of it. It's just Salt Lake, again, is one of the two best closeout teams in the league this year. But anyways, I wanted to talk about Salt Lake and just both sides of the ball, so to speak, a little bit. First, their offense and then their defense. Is this the best offense in the league in terms of performance right now? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, as much as I can, mute talent discussions <laughs> sure, or kind sure. of history here, but just when you sit down and you watch games, I feel like, in my opinion, the shred of the best offense this year. I, I have absolute respect for New York. I, I think that they are clearly, you know, deserving of their best team in the league reputation there. They're defending champs, 25 straight wins the whole nine, or 24 straight wins the whole nine yards. But how the shred continue to just work through everything, how none of their offensive rotation seems to follow the rhythm, how they all seem to have this like interdisciplinary versatility to their games where they don't have to just exist in the backfield. They don't have to just exist as a receiver upfield. They all kind of take opportunity, opportunities to exchange in their roles. Again, like, I, I just want to ask you, do you think that the shred are, are the best offense right now? Like, I, I just, they're so smooth with it. And they're so just yeah. confident. It feels like, like they wanted to play that San Diego game another like two to three quarters it felt like they were only just going harder at the end of that game and it was their second in as many nights i i would say from what we've seen this season they have looked consistently like the best on field offense again not getting into talent because yes i think new york's offense just like head to head i still probably favor the players with new york but yeah just how they've been playing i don't think there's any other offense in the league right now that just has as many like quickly efficient, you know, no one's holding the disc for more than like three second drives. Like Salt Lake, their whole offense is just a smooth, fluid flow that you see from everyone. Like all seven guys are always touching the disc. We've got like Jace Dunabile is now like launching the disc and has really developed as a thrower thrower, like as the season's gone on. You still have like kind of the the base handlers that are doing a lot of the touching, like uh Miller and, and Canole are obviously still back there, Luke Jorgensen, but like McKay, Will Selfridge, it doesn't really matter who they slot in there. It feels mm-hmm. like the most complete offensive system that we see in the league right now. And I love that they they never really get You'd think with a team that that prioritizes like quick disc movement, you'd think that maybe they get like too excited at times, maybe like forcing throws or not seeing a poach that is creeping. Like they don't really get like frazzled at all. Like there's there's never like a, a sense that like, oh, like, uh oh, like they're starting to fall apart. I feel like with Oakland, sometimes you get some like weird backfield turnovers or like miscues on resets, but there's yeah. just there's a seamlessness throughout all three levels of the shred offense, and like you just don't see them messing up as much. So it's well, it's been cool to watch. 
And to kind of draw a parallel, you know, to a DC team that is still very much a championship contender, that's kind of been some of the the error points in their offense this year is that all of a sudden they've sort of had these backfield mistakes that are kind of befuddling for a DC throwing lineup as talented as the breeze. You know, that's what happened against New York where the first break of the game was because John Randolph got busy in the reset area, caused disruption, caused a turnover and leaked out for an easy transition score. And it's like, that is not the kind of thing that happens against Salt Lake. They don't make errors there. They make errors downfield. And then they set this, one of the things I wanted to talk about was their spongy zone that they play if they do commit a turnover. Have you? Yeah, oh, I love that. It's really yeah. interesting. It's matchup by and large. It's a lot of 1v1, but they have these moments where they'll suddenly sink into the double team. They have a really good understanding of who they kind of want around the disc. It's a lot of Jacob Miller, Sean Canole, and Will Selfridge. And then they allow like Jordan Kerr and Elijah Jaime to use more of their athleticism kind of in pursuit roles or in safety mm-hmm. roles. And that's why like Kerr has a lot more blocks this year. It's just a right. really interesting thing. And it it just it compounds on the effect of how hard it is to play the shred O-line right now, which is not only do you have to dispossess them of the disc, which is increasingly harder and harder to do as they lead the league in throwing percentage, as they now yeah. have three games with 80% or above hold rate. They lead the league, I believe, in hold rate so far this season. They're just yeah. fantastically hard to score breaks against. And it's not only because of their offensive excellence, it's also because of this this sort of new skag zone that they're playing if they do commit an error. And I don't want to just reduce this to like sports platitudes and stuff, but it really does feel like on offense, they're the best at taking what the defense gives you and making the extra pass. And it really just sometimes boils down to those two things. Like there isn't a style that they prefer on offense. Like that's the thing. It's like, They're small ball oriented insofar as they like passing to each other. But if they can run a four pass chain to Jordan Kerr streaking deep, they'll take that every time too. too. Or Jason file who has emerged as a true wide receiver, one target in the West division this year, you know, they're, they're certainly not afraid of the long ball. And it's because they're so confident in understanding their reads and what they want to do on any given drive. And it's just, I don't know, like they, they, it, it, I struggle to think of times when they really encounter like a problem outside of Lucas Ambrose making a fantastic block, uh, a team kind of doing a a highlight level play against them. You just, you don't see them committing self-inflicted wounds in 2023. How do you think they'll do against the New York defense? Realistically? Dang it. I was hoping you weren't going to follow that up. (laughs) Um, I think it's going to be one of the most interesting matchups potentially like ever just, I think this New York defense, and I've said a couple times this season, is potentially the best ever. You look at the numbers, it certainly backs it up. But I think eyeball tests, too. You just, they're deep, and they know exactly how they want to approach every offensive scenario. And I just think that kind of, like, intellectual aspect of the potential Salt Lake-New York rivalry coming up, I think that's what's really going to tell. Obviously, the talent is also going to be amazing to watch. You know, you talk about the athleticism of this shred team versus the imposing nature of the Empire defense led by a two-time reigning MVP and Ben Yacht and just stacked with strong defenders throughout. I, like, I don't know where my mind goes other than to say, like, I'm just really, really intrigued to see 
the the sort of offensive principles of the shred against an empire team that kind of has like a Belichickian sense of like, we want to take the thing that you do best and completely remove it from how you play this game. And now you yeah. have to play plan B for four quarters. And if you can beat us in plan right. B, good luck. But you don't get like your A1 game against us ever. Like that's, that's how I feel like New York just does so well. You never get to play the empire defense with like full strength, full capacity doing what you want. Sure, sure. And when you think about like plan B's for an offense take, like obviously everyone comes in with a defensive game plan, like they have things that they want to stop. Do you think that Salt Lake is like, like would that be a problem for Salt Lake to have to go to plan B? Or have we seen enough versatility and variety from their offense where like you wouldn't be too worried about it messing things up? Yeah, I think they are maybe the most capable team, maybe a Carolina, maybe like a Colorado too, at like peak strength of kind of offering the most amount of potential solutions. Atlanta this year too, I should throw in. Yeah, They've been yeah, really yeah. Excellent offensively, it's showing a variety of styles. And I think maybe mm-hmm. that's one of the problems with DC is that Breeze are so huck They're so careful and considerate with the disc that New York never really has to fear being bombarded over the top and I think that they can just play a little bit more with the offense in front of them so to speak and I think that Mm -hmm. Salt Lake has enough potency and confidence again in pushing vertically downfield that at least it will require a little bit more honesty from the Empire back end and I think that that's one of the things that is limited DC is that for as fantastic as their offense is for as talented as it is it is pretty singular in terms of kind of how it from where it attacks maybe not how they have a variety of different sets that they run but typically yeah they're going to be taking their throw their assist throws inside a half field range like they're just not a hucking team then that's i think and that's what it is nice for them, except for against new york i think yeah and so when you think about it i think that i i just think yeah i i think salt lake presents a versatility that could potentially figure out aspects of this empire defense I also think if you more broadly think about when a team's offense looks like its best version of itself, I feel like DC's is just crystal clear. Like we know it's that quick small ball, like rotational movement where the handlers are constantly rotating and and everything's Mm -hmm. moving nicely. With Salt Lake, you probably would say a similar thing. Although, you know, the, the Sean Canole huck to Jordan Kerr off a pull play also great. And like with New York, I don't know if there's like one version of the offense that I'd point to and be like, this is their best shot at winning games. Maybe it is just Osgar letting loose, but maybe it's Jeff Babbitt dominating the red zone. Like, I feel like the teams where you can't so easily pinpoint what like the best version of their offense looks like, those I think are the most dangerous teams. And like Atlanta has evolved to that point this year, right? Like where it used to be, obviously it was the, the Huck connections of Bobby Lay and Austin Taylor, but now it's like, all right, they they play really like efficient, you know, 10 to 15 throw drives too. So, mm-hmm. you know, the more ways an offense can adjust, obviously that puts them in a better spot to respond whatever defense is doing to them. Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, I think it also kind of only applies to New York and Salt Lake this season and, and the other good teams as far as this kind of ambiguity of style. I think it works yeah. in the opposite direction for a team like, say, Madison or something that can't quite settle on. <laughs> Are we a fast break? Sure, sure, like, sure. Right, right. I'm talking about, yeah, like elite offenses. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, other, otherwise that confusion of identity, Chicago too, I think. Central yeah. division in general offenses um, outside of Indy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, uh, I, I think that's about all for New York and Salt Lake's results from week 10. Obviously just super anticipatory for their week 12 matchup. That is setting up to be an all-timer. I just kind of hope that both teams are still undefeated by that point just so we get... Well, I love New York has to play Colorado right before that, too, which is also like oh, an incredible true. matchup. Yeah. Well, why don't we talk uh, just for a moment about Colorado? They went 24 to 16 on Friday night in Portland, 18 to 9 in Seattle on Saturday. They look like they've completely rebounded after their three game skid. Both yeah. you and I weren't really concerned about the summit so much as just we wanted to see them respond to their first sustained yeah. bout of losing like there was their first ever losing streak you simply want to see how teams kind of pull themselves out of that tailspin and i think the summit despite lacking starters despite not having another cut and spicer in the lineup they just go and get it done in a pacific northwest road trip that can be befuddlesome for some teams if they have high aspirations entering it and i i think that definitely the nitro and cascades are playing with more skeleton crew rosters at this point in the season but it is still nonetheless impressive for a Colorado team who has now clinched their second straight playoff appearance and I think gets an opportunity now to exist in a space where they haven't so far in their franchise's tenure, which is as a slight underdog, and to come at this game from a slightly different angle. You know, since the moment they signed John Nethercutt, Jay Frude, Matt Jackson, all these kind of franchise pillars – Summit has been the odds-on favorite to win the West Division. And that goes back to the beginning of 2022, maybe even the end of 2021. I, I can't quite remember the exact day that they announced another cut signing, but it was basically the day they announced the franchise. So like yeah. ever since that moment, it's felt like Summit have had to work underneath of both the, the sort of regalement of being the, the, fran the West Division favorite and the expectations that come along with that. And I think you saw, particularly like in Oakland, a little bit of a team in the Spiders being able to feed off of the potential upset. And Colorado, in their turn, sort of succumbing to, you know, second game of a back-to-back, -back, fatigue, we don't have another cut, you know, the, all these various factors. And I just, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch the Summit in their final stretch of games and heading into the playoffs as to how they kind of, I think, take this as an opportunity, you know, to to kind of re-emerge as this power team that we know after right. experiencing a little bit of adversity. You know, I, I just think back to like the years of Madison never really getting what they felt like was a proper test before they went into championship weekend. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden had to have all these expectations and kind of fell just shy a number of years. I think Colorado is kind of experiencing something similar where they were looking for maybe a, a different kind of test. And then all of a sudden Salt Lake kind of uprises on them and surprises them a bit this year. And like, they're looking for like a little bit of, I, I don't know, I'm getting off a little bit into the weeds, but I, I just think, I, I think that the summit have a really good opportunity to sort of like restart almost their season in a way from this point, because they're still eight and three. They're still an absolute championship contender. They still look like, a championship weekend team at full strength. And I think they now mm -hmm. get to sort of head into the postseason with a little bit more of a chip on their shoulder than they've had in the past. Yeah, definitely. I, I worry a little bit because I don't disagree with you about sort of 
mentally restarting the season at this point. But last year, like you remember, I mean, their first few games of the season, they were not playing like the cleanest ultimate. They were winning a lot, but they were turning the disc over like mm-hmm. I don't know, 15 to 20 times per game pretty consistently. But then as the season went on, they just like slowly got better and better and better and cleaner and cleaner. And it was like with the same offensive line, the same defensive line, like they were just hitting their stride kind of continually throughout the season. And of course, it culminated in those big wins over Salt Lake. I just don't know, like, like yeah, they've been without Nethercut for a couple weekends. Like, obviously, Spicer wasn't there this past weekend. When they come back to full strength, is there going to be some concern of, like, I just, like, the Nethercut and Spicer switch O-line and D-line? And, like, is it going to be an Atkins offense? Is it going to be a Nethercut offense? Like, what exactly are they going to look like in these pivotal playoff games where it feels like they should have kind of figured that out? And and I don't, I just don't know if they're like hitting their stride in the right way at the right time. You know what I mean? Like there's still questions no, I have about so. the rotations. I think you bring up a fantastic point. And I think it kind of defeats what I was just talking about. I was kind of taking the glass half full approach of you don't know. What <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. Of they're out there. You don't necessarily know the rotations. They're not a clear as clear of a blueprint as they were last year. And I think that could potentially be a benefit for them going against the Salt Lake team in the playoffs who has such a blueprint to their success this season, who you do know right. who's going to slot in where and when. Like Summit, not so much. And maybe that variability can help them. But to your point, that variability has very much resulted in much more turnovers this season, particularly later than they were experiencing last year. I mean, you were absolutely right. correct. I think in the final like eight games of the 2022 regular season, the Summit were averaging somewhere around like 13 turns a game. I mean, they yeah, were just that. flawless with this on offense. Nethercut and Landisman had so much chemistry in the back half of that season. And this year, there's just not that. There's a lot yeah. less cohesion to the summit this year i think they're still as talented you know we talked about it continually over the offseason heading into 2023 but they've been dealing with a lot i think as far as their roster goes they've had a lot of injuries sort of pile up in a very i think odd and and mishapish way where it's you know sort of one week it's these two the next week it's these two the next week it's these three but one player comes back and it's just it's kind of like heads and tails, it feels like, with some of these Colorado rotations. And we've talked about that a bunch, about the, the particularly Spicer and Nethercut experimentations. But I think that that's been happening yeah. elsewhere. About just curiosity about, like, oh, Connor Olson is playing more offense this week as opposed to defense. Yep. Justin Abel can slot in on both lines. Like, Goldstein they have a lot of those. What? Yeah, I think uh, a couple others. Yeah, they've just been... Like oh, I'm Bru- sure. Brewster I've seen on, on a lot of and defensive last, lines. And last year, it was like, I think Spicer played 10 total points of offense. <laughs> right, right. It year. was crystal And those were like, those were like following timeouts to punch in break scores, I think. Like, that's how yeah. it added up. Like, they were so disciplined in their line rotations last year, and it's just not the case this year. And yeah, it'll be yeah. really interesting to see whether what you say as far as like, that's led to their inconsistencies or if they can sort of derive, I guess, you know, their true power or, or the true talent that we expect from Colorado and sort of make a run of it after getting a little bit of a heat check in the middle of the season. Right. Well, it's especially interesting when you just compare it to Salt Lake, who like, we just, we know what we're getting with Salt Lake. We know what their D line is. 
Johnny Hoffman, by the way, I just want to quickly shout out him. He's been flying all over the field all season. I think he's on my all-defense team at this point. I don't think we talk about Johnny Hoffman enough. But, like, yeah, their defense has this very clear-cut identity. Obviously, their offensive identity has been in check the entire season. And, yeah, it's just been different with Colorado. Johnny Hoffman, incredible. Uh, I also want to give shout-outs to Tony Munga and Kyle Weinberg. I think Tony Munga's, like, big. I didn't realize how big he was. He's dude. He's a big boy, and he likes being in the handley spacing. You saw it on that jump squad against San Diego in the second half where he, like, he did the John Randolph. He did the thing where you kind of, like, (laughs) backwards three yards and then just jump up expecting an over-the-top throw. But he's so large that it was like there's, there's a, a lot of bear that. emerging from a cave. It was just yeah. he's been incredible. I think if I were to still pick an all defense defender, all due respect to Johnny Hoffman, he's been lights out and just continues to make highlight real plays. It's gotta be Kyle Weinberg. Like I, I think he is uh, one of the I go back and forth this year. He's go back and so forth good them. for them, man. I he's know so he is. solid and he doesn't make highlights, which I think is the detraction against him. I think there is kind of a nebulous sort of if he's going to be a great defensive player, I need to see like a layout block that sort of informs some level of thinking about how we sort of build a pipe around these guys. Because if you just watch Kyle Weinberg, sure. he doesn't lose very many matchups. He's virtually in the right place all the time. He's big. He's athletic. He knows how to use those qualities. He's becoming so good off of the turn. We've talked before about how this Salt Lake defensive attack has transitioned so much out of the sort of Chad Jorgensen huck and hope of 2022. It's been because yeah. of guys like Kyle Weinberg. He had a fade throw to Tony Munga. Great capitalized on the bookends. He had one last year that should have been the premonition. For oh all yeah. That, that cross field throw last field. year. Oh man. That was beautiful. That was nice. And he's had more this year. And I, I don't know, man, I just really like his game. It is so stripped really of any smooth. kind of like sexiness or showiness, but he's just, in it every single game and i just feel like he makes people have off nights as much of the shred defense is starting to do here in the back half yeah no it's totally fair i i wouldn't want to take him off the all defense team to put johnny hoffman on but but i just feel like johnny hoffman deserved a, a shot he's, he's, he's nuts like dude. it's like him him and ambrose the amount of layout blocks they have is probably double the amount of any other player in the league right now yeah and Johnny Hoffman did this last year in the West Division Championship game. He was a part of the Shred's huge second half surge. He had a mm-hmm. insane like backside coming off of his dude from 15 yards away, like layout past the receiver, but like swatting the disc in front of him. He's I don't know. I, I have only superlatives for Johnny Hoffman at this point. So yeah, good. <laughs> uh, that'll do it for that. We should move on. Let's talk just a little bit about Boston and Philadelphia setting up for this Friday's meeting in what will essentially determine the third playoff spot in the East Division. Five and four Philly, five and four Boston. They're both coming off wins against Canada teams. Boston, interestingly, sweeps their Canada set in Canada. They won all three games against the Royale and the Rush now north of the border. That's obviously a big part as to why Boston is in a playoff race that we didn't quite expect them to be in the beginning of the season, but mm-hmm. their defense continues to battle every single week. They're missing some pretty major starters on defense this week, but it did not matter. Chris Bartoli was back in the matchup. He was huge. I, you know, in terms of like importance on an individual team's line, 
I think Bartoli is one of the most valuable pieces for any given roster. He just, yeah, in in coverage, off of a turn, his energy, everything about it. I just, I like the dude. He's a gamer. Him and Gus Halflin, I think, have really just, and Rocco Linehan, have just like brought yeah. the D-line teeth into a totally different like level than what I had anticipated in 2023. Like I thought if Boston was going to have success, it was going to be because of their offense. And certainly they have some very nice playmakers on offense. Ray Tetro, Ben Sadok, they had solid performances. But man, mm-hmm. the reason why the glory keep winning is this defense. And I think that that's going to be really interesting setting up against a Philly team who has a really good defense, has been playing excellent of late, even against some lesser offensive competition. But I feel like the tilt will be the glory defense versus a Philly offensive attack led by James Pollard, Sean Mott, Jordan Ryan, Greg Martin. Where do you see the give for either teams? Like if Boston's going to win, how do they accomplish it? If Philly is going to continue on their five-game winning streak, how are they going to accomplish it? And do you have a sense of who you even favor for the third seed? Because I don't between these two teams. Should also be yeah. mentioned at the table a little bit more. Uh, Boston did win the first matchup between these two teams back a few weeks. Philly held a seven-goal lead in that game, frittered it away <laughs> to the glory in Boston. And that's, that's again, I think one of the most underpinning parts of how I view this Philly team this year is that right. giving yeah. up that, like, I, I believe the hype as far as their hot bird ceiling but man, that cold birds floor scares me. Still, still days. looming in your minds, the cold birds. I'm, I'm kind of done what, with them. What I, other playoff? What other playoff team other than Philly has given up a seven goal <laughs> lead and lost on their resume this year? Quick, they Go. had they had an like, outrageous. What, what's even the closest? What's even the closest lead and loss for a potential playoff team outside of seven goals this year? Because I would I would bet it's not Good above question. four if we would go back and look like. Seven goals is a remarkable thing to cough up. They had an outrageous start to the season. They lost in like every way imaginable. They they put up one of the worst performances we've ever seen against New York in the first week of the season. I yeah, I was blown away by how Philly kept finding new ways to lose at the beginning of the year. But I don't know. I'm buying into this five game winning streak as a team that has turned their season around. I I, want to be clear. I am too. I'm just (laughs) saying that those facts are still back. They happened. I yeah yeah yeah. We can't change the past. We can acknowledge that it happened. But like I, I just see Philly as so much further away from that team that somehow coughed up a seven goal lead to Boston and I think we've just seen more on both sides of the disc from Philly than than I have from Boston at this point like it is amazing this turnaround for the Boston team like I'm with you like I I had zero faith in their defense heading into the season because historically like they're if they've been in games is because their offense was clicking and their defense would you know typically allow 20 plus goals every single week but the fact that that is now their their defining piece this season is incredible and I just it's on the other side it's on offense where I just haven't seen you know enough games where they're converting like 50 percent or better to to really feel like they belong uh in the East Division playoffs whereas with Philly I think we've clearly seen at their peak they are a team that competes with New York competes with DC beats Carolina like that that resume is just a lot stronger to me so I am taking Philly to beat Boston this week 
I think I am too. I think I'm also going to do it thinking about it a moment while you were talking is because of that defense against the inconsistent Bossano. Like, yeah, I think we put a lot of deserved attention on the playmaking of the Phoenix O-line. But again, kind of what has really built up their resume during this five game winning streak is that flat mark, no nonsense Phoenix defense. I mean, Matt Hanna has had a series of great performances. Max Triflis continues to be one of the league leaders in they takeaways. Paul Owens continues to build on his resume after being an all-defense team member in 2022. Eric mm-hmm. Whitmer might be their best defender night in, night out in 2023. He continues to not quite get the love I think he's deserving of. They don't have any necessary stars on the Philly defense, but they go like 12 deep in terms of guys just ready to step up and contribute something. And I think that that is like landmark tectonic difference for Philly than anything that they've had before. Because even Mm -hmm. last year, their successes were kind of built off of the high flying offense and everything else. This, this newfound discipline and sort of tenaciousness on defense. I mean, they did it against Carolina home. They did it against New York at home. They can just sometimes yeah. stand teams up and say, you got to work it against us. And we're going to still be flying and getting blocks in here. Like they, they play, I think a great bend, not break, but at the same time, they're aggressive in mm-hmm. ways that like remind me of the shred or something like they do throw yeah. themselves up and they do get legit takeaways. It's not just kind of, forced pressure system, you know, double teams, making the offense, make bad plays. Like this Philly D line can earn that disc. And I think that that might be a little bit of a struggle for Boston that didn't have to face a Phoenix defense like this in the beginning part of the season. Like, I really feel like that defensive pressure has turned up the past month and particularly ever since they got the kind of like confidence win against the Flyers. Like, I think that that has done tremendous for building up this team's morale. Yeah, they're they're rolling. I remember a quote, I think it was from Charlie Hoppus. It might have been last year, but he said like like we always play Philly weird. And I was just like thinking mm-hmm. about that. And I yeah. think it is because of the, it's because of the Phoenix defense. It's mm-hmm. like their defense just frustrates opponents. Like it it's kind of a combination of just like the 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 pure matchup nature and just like the hustle mentality they have throughout the line and then also their depth like yeah there isn't really a weak link defensively there's no clear matchup to attack at a, any given time like these are just guys that that are constantly playing like at their maximum 100 percent level on every single d point and yeah it, it can frustrate the best offenses so yes i i am a little bit worried about how boston can respond to that and then i like i think it would take Philly's offense having a notably off game, which we just haven't seen since they've been winning in order to keep Boston in the game. You know, like if, I think if Philly has one of their weird offensive games, this could be very close, but if Philly can convert at like 50 or even higher percent, I, I think they should be fine. Well, we'll be sure to get more into that matchup preview this Thursday when we tackle all of the week 11 games. Well, I shouldn't say all. We'll we'll be selective. We Some. don't have time to cover the 12 games played we'll week 11. But we will definitely be yeah. previewing Boston and Philly, as well as a slew of other matchups. Really important divisional theater coming up this weekend. It will continue to draw closer and closer to the 2023 playoffs. We're getting set to wrap up here in the Week 10 recap episode. But again, we'll be back with you in just a few short days. Thank you again, as always, for tuning in. 
We will be talking to you soon. Bye now.